congregation to join me this morning in repeating the Apostles' Creed, please. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He ascended into hell. The third day he arose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Our scripture reading this morning comes from Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 through 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is the word of the Lord. All right, if you guys would join me in prayer as we dive in. Dear Father, as we dive into the second section of the Apostles' Creed and into your words in Colossians, Lord, would you send your Holy Spirit to minister to us and to um, open up the meaning of your message and your words to us as well as to, to write it in our hearts and on our minds. Father, if I give me the strength and the words to say, and if I say anything or, or do anything that is not glorifying in, in what you have to say, Lord, may it be forgotten and, and corrected and dismissed. And now, Lord, we pray in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. I don't know if you guys have noticed this or not, but across the street, just behind me here, there's a, there's a pretty large building being built. It seems like for months and months they've just been pushing dirt around to and fro, kind of doing a bunch of stuff, putting fences up and and, and looking really cold out there, but now all of a sudden you've got walls and you've got you've got roofs going in, and there's this big, massive building being built right across the street from us. Um, and it seems like it took them a really long time to get to this point, which makes sense because as I was doing a real little research and having a few conversations this week about uh, foundations of buildings and houses and whatnot, foundations really important for a building. Uh, 
contractors and construction workers and different what would say that even in the smallest mistake in a foundation can result in the rest of the building being off or, or structurally unsound. And then even if the error isn't immediate as you're putting the building together, let's say you get to the roof and, and it actually does meet as you think it should, that doesn't necessarily mean that the foundation's good to go because there could be things that weren't built correctly that will manifest later on when you have weather or, or other events coming in and testing the building and its structural integrity. Um, for example, here in Missouri, we have clay soil for the most part, a lot of clay soil. And so as the, as the soil dries out, it can kind of shrink and contract and your foundation can shift and move with that. Or as it gets wet, it'll kind of expand and hold that moisture and it can push your foundation up. And so you've got a building that moves around. And as we know from earthquakes, buildings aren't supposed to move. Now, I'm thinking in the minds of, of a construction worker, or if I was over there, that, man, it would be really boring to be spending that many months pushing around dirt and building a foundation. It'd be easy to try to get impatient and want to get this, this foundation built quickly and get it done because most construction places, they've got contracts, they've got deadlines, and if they don't meet their deadlines, they got to pay money or they don't get paid as much. And so you want to maybe try to get through this as fast as possible and, and get it done so you can get to those walls and get to the, the other things that are maybe... Um, a little bit more visually impressive, or maybe that's my own desire at least. But as we talked about, being impatient with the foundation is only going to cause problems later. Uh, if, we're, if we're not slow, if we don't take our time, if we're not precise and, 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 and lay everything out just as it needs to be, we'll pay for it. If not right away, then later on when, when other forces come and affect your building and test it. And I would say this is often the case in the church or in the life of a Christian, this, this temptation to be impatient when laying down the foundation of faith. Um, and we get impatient on this because we want to get to the other things that are more impressive or, or at least we get to see the progress. Like when the building walls go up and you're putting the roof on and you get to get to the point where you're putting furniture in and all those things. Those are the fun things such as like getting to practicing spiritual gifts and, and um, coming in and being able to make decisions in the church and all of these things that are easy to see and, and to act on and, and fun. But it's that foundation that we set down that supports all of these things. Um, and without that foundation being solidly set and meticulously laid down to perfection, everything else is going to fall apart or be affected later on. Now, the people of Colossae in that passage we just wrote well, they were experiencing some of these challenges to their faith. Uh, false teachers were coming in, and they were trying to convince them that they needed to build outside their foundation. Yeah, you've got that foundation that the apostles came and or Epaphras came and, and talked to you about, but there's more to it. You need more to support your building, and so you should build with these other materials and outside of this and support it that way. But knowing this, Paul writes this letter that we were reading to the Colossians, and he writes it to encourage them. But notice, in this, we're in the first chapter here, instead of immediately going to these false teachings and saying, this is wrong, instead he goes to the foundation of their faith, and he talks about Christ. He says, know what you believe first, set this up well. And he reminds them of what their faith is built on and what we confess in the Apostles' Creed, in this, and especially in the second section that Jesus gives our faith its foundation. 
And we must use the full, all of that foundation, not just the parts of Jesus that we like or or don't like. We must use all of the foundation that Jesus gives us in his faith, but not anything outside of it. And so it's important for us, and this is why we're we're kind of walking through the Apostles' Creed these three weeks, to set up our foundation and make sure that we have it done well before we try to build onto anything else or or exercise these gifts or, or, or make decisions in the church. And there's three areas in this second section of the Apostles' Creed that we recited that we can kind of break this down into. And we have, we have the first couple lines talk about Jesus' life. Second couple lines talk about Jesus' death. And the last few lines talk about his resurrection. And so in our first point, talking about how our foundation is found in Jesus' life. Now, if you want to turn to Colossians, if you've got those Bibles with you, look with me in chapter 1, verse 17. Paul writes this, he says, And he, that is Jesus, is before all things, and in him all things hold together. All right, so obviously Jesus is pretty important. So who is this Jesus guy? Who is this guy that we confess belief in when we recite that Apostles' Creed together? Well, first of all, his name is Jesus. In the original languages, and phonetically, it would be, you would pronounce it Yeshua which is very close to and pretty much the same thing as Joshua back in the Old Testament, but it means he who saves. So already his name means a person who saves. All right, so then we go on, we say, I believe in Jesus Christ. Now, contrary to popular belief, or perhaps how we always say it, Jesus Christ, Christ isn't a last name. If he was born in the Johnson family, he wouldn't be Jesus Johnson. No, Christ is his title. In the same way that we talk about Queen Elizabeth, we would talk about Christ Jesus. Christ is that, is that title given to him saying that he is the one who fulfills, he's the promised Messiah. All of those Old Testament prophecies and promises or whatnot are all fulfilled in him. And that's why he gets this title, Christ. He's the one everyone's been waiting for. And then we go on and we say, we confess that Christ is God's only son. That seems, for us, we, we've said this perhaps so many times that saying Jesus Christ is only son just seems natural. And, and saying he's his only son doesn't really necessarily mean a whole lot. But it, in the original context, originally saying that Jesus was the son of God was totally different than saying that he was the Christ. Because the Christ that they were expecting wasn't necessarily, or they had no conception that he would be actually God, the Son of God. And this is the part of our confession of faith that differentiates Christians from every other religion on earth. We confess that Jesus is divine. Last week we talked about the first part of the confession. We talked about believing in God the Father, the maker of heaven and earth. And if you, haven't, if you weren't here last week and you haven't had a chance to listen to Steve's sermon on that, I highly recommend that you go listen to it. it he did an excellent job of introducing the Apostles' Creed and that first section of it. Um, and so listening to that might help even make this next section make a little bit more sense. But believing in God the Father, when we confess that, that he's the maker of heaven and earth, we have differentiated ourselves from Hinduism and a whole, pretty much all of the Eastern religions by saying we believe in the one God. And now when we say we believe in Jesus Christ as God's only son, now we part ways from Judaism and Islam. Because we believe that Jesus wasn't created. We believe he is God, he's fully God, and he has always been 
fully God. He's not merely God with a skin suit when he came into earth. And he's not God with a body and no soul. No, he's fully human and fully God. Which is impossible to understand. But we we confess our belief in it. Um, Because as we talked about, if you remember back in Christmas, we talked about how earth is that speck of a speck of a speck of a speck on and on and on and on down in the universe. Earth in the scope of the universe is something super tiny. And in the scope of the earth, Jesus, that's God, the creator of this whole thing, can find himself into humanity, into being a human. So he was a speck on a speck in this vast creation of universe. And so why is he then called son? If he's fully God, fully human, why is he called son? Wouldn't that mean that he came into existence? This isn't a chicken or egg problem. A father has to come before a son, right? You would think that the father would come first. The son would then come second. There's a lot of discussion on this. I would say kind of in short here because I want to be aware of our time. But the Bible often uses the word son as a means of saying possessing the nature of. So when we call him the son of God, we are saying he possesses the nature of. He proceeds from God the father, but he is not he, was, he has always been there with God the Father. And we'll get into this a little bit more later. There's, there's a few other things we'll talk about, kind of foreshadowing hit here about. In our passage, Paul calls Jesus the firstborn twice, and that also kind of informs this whole title of Son of God. Moving on, we get to that next, and I'm going real slow here, but we get to the next section we say, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. And this is the part that the world has a whole lot of problems with calling Jesus our Lord, our ruler, the one that we should be following. When in reality, this is a really small step. If we believe Jesus is the Savior, if we believe he's the Christ, the Messiah, the one that we've been expecting from the Old Testament, and we believe that he's fully God, his only son, well, it only makes sense that he would be our Lord. That's not a big step. This isn't the, this isn't the jump. The rest of it, that's the stuff that, 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 that takes the belief. This is a natural progression from that. And our next couple lines talk about something that maybe we don't really understand the significance of. I know I haven't for, didn't for a long time. We say that Jesus was conceived of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Why is that important? Why does it matter for us you know, Protestants that Jesus was born to the Virgin Mary? Why couldn't he have just had natural birth? For one, there's a prophecy in Isaiah, chapter 7, verse 14, saying that the Messiah will be born to a virgin. So we've got that. So, so by doing this, he checks that box off, saying, yep, he is, he's born to a virgin. He, he fulfills that prophecy. But even greater than that, and I'm going to, in the words of, of J.I. Packer here, um, not quoted exactly, but his Jesus' entry into the world and his exit from the world were both extraordinary, announcing that this wasn't some ordinary human beings. We know, and we'll talk about later, about his ascension into heaven and how that was miraculous and crazy, and he rose from the dead. But his entry into the earth itself also announced that this is not an ordinary human. 
This man came conceived by the Holy Spirit, not by man. He didn't inherit the sin that we inherited from Adam and Eve. He came into the world sinless, but he also came born of a virgin, a miracle that shouldn't be able to happen. Human anatomy doesn't allow that to just happen. But he was. Further supporting this claim that this is a miraculous person and supporting the claim that this is the Son of God. When I first started tutoring, back when I was in seminary, I I tutored high school kids in uh, math, science, and ACT prep just to earn a little bit of money. And when I first started, I was assigned a um, one of the more experienced tutors. He was really good. He'd been there for a long time, knew what he was doing. He was, he, he was very good at the whole tutoring experience. And he was good, and he was able to teach me well because he'd been there. He'd been that first-time tutor before, and he knew how to deal with teenagers, teenagers that didn't want to bring their homework. They didn't want to stay motivated. They didn't want to do their homework when they were outside of the tutoring session to continue on with that during the week. And in addition to teenagers, he also knew how to deal with your helicopter parents who wanted to make sure that that one session they had the day before the test would ensure that they did better on the test and also to make sure that they were getting their money's worth when they wouldn't continue to meet. And he, my mentor had been through those, those challenges and he'd faced these different awkward situations. And so he was able to tell me how to do these well. He'd done them well himself, which made him in the position to be a mentor. And then when he taught me, it helped me. His example helped me to handle these challenges and navigate these situations better. And in an even greater way, that's a bit of our relationship with Jesus. That's why it's significant that he came and lived here on earth. He's been here. He knows the challenges we faced. And yet, even though he knows how hard it is to face these for the first time, he knows what it means to do and face these challenges and glorify God in the midst of them. To do them with sin, to face them and to work through them without compromising our faith. I kind of hammered this, I've repeated this in a lot of sermons, and I hope that repetition is the key to learning, one of my tutoring techniques that we're saying this time and time again, that this is hopefully a a source of immense comfort. That when we're facing these situations, when we're facing sickness, both mentally and physically, uh, when we're facing financial troubles, when we're facing the temptations of the world to put our our worth and, and, and our faith in something else other than God, that we are in communion with a God who has been there, who has faced these same challenges, who knows what it's like to have these things staring us in the face and, and, and not feel like there's any way out of it or any good way out of it. And yet he did it. And so we can take his example and we can lean on him. We can read his words. We can talk to him in prayer. And we can imitate his actions, falling back on when we don't know what to do, what he did, what he says, what he's saying to us to help us through these things. But he wasn't just a good teacher and he wasn't just a good mentor. And the foundation that Jesus lays for our faith doesn't just consist of his example in life. It's a whole lot broader than that, as if that wasn't enough. Our foundation is also found in Jesus' death. If you look with me in verses 19 and 20 in in Colossians 1, Paul writes that, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. 
In the Apostles' Creed, we confess this by talking about how Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. And in that, we're confessing that Jesus suffered at the hands of the very people that he came to save. The rulers and the authorities who should have been helping the people and showing the people underneath them how to love God and how to serve him faithfully were those same ones who condemned him to death. The people that he came to save were the people who betrayed him and hung him up on the cross. This is a topic that unfortunately many of us are able to identify with. This theme of betrayal. Betrayal, it hurts and it wounds deeply. Something that can destroy trust and erode our faith. Um, Perhaps we've experienced it through friends uh, going in on a business contract with someone or, or venture and then they don't hold up their end and we're left holding all the strings and, and picking up the loose ends. Or perhaps we've had a family member that's acted out against us for no reason, looking to take advantage of us in some way. Or parents, maybe you've had kids that have rejected you even though you've poured decades of love and nurture into them. Maybe even we've experienced a fi- spouse filing for a divorce after deciding that they don't love us anymore, even though they committed to do that for the rest of their lives. Perhaps even you've experienced a leader in the church, the one who, like the rulers and authorities, was supposed to be modeling the love of Jesus, but instead uses the position for power, and for abuse, and for personal gain. These are the things, these betrayals, these are the things that and they cut deeply, and they affect the rest of our lives, whether we're willing to acknowledge it or not. The grief and the hopelessness and the pain, they can all meld together and rightfully produce anger in us. We get angry in the face of betrayal. And it's not an anger that can be um, satisfied with a simple apology, because that wound goes a whole lot deeper. A simple words of, I'm sorry, aren't, don't seem like enough. And this is the betrayal, this is the experience of betrayal that Jesus experienced at the hands of Judas. This is a hint of the betrayal that God experienced when we sin against him. And Jesus took the full force of that wrath, of that anger, of our betrayal on himself. In Marvel's most recent Avengers movie, there's a scene where Thor stands and he takes the full force of a star, all the, the, the energy and heat of a star coming through him so that he can forge an axe. Well, in the Apostles' Creed, we confess that Jesus took on the full wrath of the God who created all of those stars so that we are forgiven. And that's what we are saying when we confess that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and buried. He suffered the wrath caused by our betrayal. Then we confess that Jesus descended into hell. This is a phrase that entered the discussion and, and entered into the Apostles' Creed a little bit later than most of it, um, but it's important. And what it means is that Jesus really did die. Now, we have one word for hell, and the Bible has several words that we have kind of incorporated into hell and probably not in the right way. Um, 
But in here, in, in, in the way that we're saying it in the Apostles' Creed, when we say he descended into hell, we are stating that, yes, Jesus really did die. He experienced that departure from life. He didn't go to the, the place of eternal torture. No. But he did die, hence the descended phrase. He went to the place of disembodied, lower in worth and dignity than life on earth. And Jesus entering into that disembodied meant a state of disembodied where the soul and the body, things that were never meant to be separated, are separated, means that we can face death knowing that when it comes, we shall not find ourselves alone. Jesus has been there before us and he will see us through it. When I was a freshman in high school, I was out for football. Um, and a couple seniors on the football team, I don't know if it was before or after practice, throwing a Frisbee around. And they took a Frisbee and they threw it and didn't catch it or something and went right into a freshly laid cement. And our coach was not happy. He didn't know who were the people that threw the Frisbee, but he knew that the Frisbee came from the football team and that it went into this cement that our, our janitorial team had spent so long laying and, and doing well. And so he announced that in order to get your Frisbee back, you'd have to suffer the punishment. And the punishment that he laid out was a, a Pro 100, as he called it. Uh, a Pro 100 means is, uh, sprinting and jogging back every five-yard interval of the football field all the way up and back. So about 2,000 yards of, of sprinting and jogging um, combined. Now, a little freshman me, being a little bit better at, at distance running than probably anyone else in the, uh, on the football team, was like, well... Here's my chance. Here's my chance to secure favor in the eyes of these seniors and whatnot. And, and so I did it. I went out and I ran that in full pads in the heat of August. And, uh, and it was hard. But we got through it. I got the Frisbee back, gave it to those seniors, and, and, and I received their favor. I, I was in good standing in their eyes. But in the opposite way is how Jesus took our punishment. Whereas I was looking for favor in the seniors' eyes, the people who were the transgressors, so that I could, I could move forward. Jesus wasn't looking to gain favor in our eyes when he did this. But he was working so that we could be brought back to favor in God's eyes. It would have been as if I was running that, that punishment such that the coach would bring those seniors back into favor. That wasn't my motivation. But that was Jesus. And so when we live our lives... We can live not as people who are constantly worrying whether God will be pleased with our efforts or if we've been good enough. Because we know we haven't. We haven't been good enough. And so we don't live like anyone has to be good enough. And we don't judge others for their sin because we know that our sin contributed just as much to Jesus' suffering on that cross as anyone else's could. And yet we both have been offered that gift of forgiveness. And we don't fear death because Jesus has been there before us. Our culture doesn't like to talk about death. Um, we'd rather focus on a whole lot of other things, but we, we don't have to have those qualms when talking about it. Not that we don't need to be sorrow, not that there isn't grief that's associated with it, but we don't need to be afraid of it. Because our Christ has been there before us. And yet even that isn't the extent of our foundation. Our faith doesn't end in, in, in having Jesus as an example. It's not as small as just having a foundation in his life and in his death. It goes even further and bigger than that. 
Because our foundation is also laid in Jesus' resurrection. And that's the third part of this section, of, of the second section of the creed. In verse 18, Paul writes, And he, that is Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. He calls Jesus the firstborn of the dead. Meaning to say that Jesus didn't stay dead. Which is why we confess that on the third day, he rose from the dead. And this is the sentence that changes everything. In it, we confess that our great hope, the great hope of our faith, that life doesn't end in death, but that we get to enjoy life forever with God. Even now, through faith, we have joined Jesus in his death, but also in his resurrection, so that our lives are one with him, which informs this title, Son of God. God considers us his sons. He calls us the the sons of God. But Jesus was the first and the preeminent son of God. He was the first born out of death. Hence this imagery of son to father. God adopted us as his children because we share in the life of Jesus, who was the first to be born from the dead. Now suppose Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Suppose as many many, uh, uh, theologians and even Christian people who call themselves Christian theologians would say that Jesus was just a man and he died. We would still have his teaching. We would still have his sacrifice. Wouldn't that be enough? Well, if he was didn't raise from the dead, well, he wouldn't be reigning and he wouldn't return. And every item after that sentence, after that sentence that Jesus was suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and buried wouldn't exist. The Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of the resurrection ever after, those wouldn't be part of our creed or our confession if Jesus didn't raise from the dead. And so when we say he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, from there he will come to judge the living and the dead, we are saying that Jesus went to heaven, heaven being the state of angels or men, as they share the life of God, whether in foretaste now or in fullness hereafter. In this sense, the Christian's reward or treasure and inheritance are all in heaven. And heaven is shorthand for the Christian's final hope. Quote from J.I. Packer again. In a world that faces threats of climate change, possible new Cold War now, collapse of economies and never-ending social strife, The promise of Jesus coming again is the one hope that we can have confidence in and that outshines any other. Any other plan for for renewable energy, any other plan for complete uh, utopia of racial racial relations. Not that we shouldn't be working towards these things. We are stewards, as we talked about. But this is the hope that we know will happen. And it's not just a dream. And so why is it so unpopular to talk about it? Why is it so unpopular to talk to people that Jesus was risen from the dead and he's coming again? Say a few scholars have kind of defined, boiled this down to four big reasons. One, for the past century and a half, we've had Christians trying to say that Jesus is coming at this specific date and time. 
Even though the Bible says you're not going to know the date and time, we tried to say this is the date and time and that you all need to, to repent and get right with God and get ready for this. And then those times came and went and they looked foolish because it didn't happen. Two, there's skepticism as to whether Christ personally and physically rose and ascended even within the Christian ranks. Three, there's timidity in the face of, of the self-sufficient secularism of our culture and of Marxist ideologies that we would need something else to hope in. And we don't want to be called fundamentalists, and we don't want to be seen as uncaring about social and economic justice. And so when we say, oh yes, Christ is coming again, well, well, don't you care about what's happening here and right now? Well, yeah, of course we do. But it's easy in, in, in the history of our faith, so many people who have professed and have the hope of Jesus coming again have disregarded those other things. Fourth, last reason they put is a lot of the Christians in the West are pretty prosperous. And so we are thinking a whole lot less and less about the better things that Christ will bring because we're already absorbed by the good things we enjoy. We're able to buy the things we need. We're able to support ourselves. We're able, if there's something that we want, even beyond our needs, we're able to go and get it. And so why would we hope for and why would we desperately long for something when we're already comfortable? But the message that we have is this, is that Jesus is coming again. Whether we're comfortable, whether we, the world wants to hear it or not, we confess and we believe that he is. And so we must be prepared. Talk about, in the Bible, it, it doesn't mean because Jesus is coming again that, that we shouldn't just shun everything else and, and, and just sit here on our, on our hands waiting, waiting until Jesus comes. No, plan and budget for an ordinary span of years. Expect to live 70 or 80 years. Be good stewards of what we've been given. But in spirit, in our faith, be ready. Be packed up. Be ready for when Jesus comes to greet him, to welcome him, and to enjoy that restoration of creation. Though we may be blinded by it sometimes through our, through our own wealth and, and, and um, self-sufficiency, the pain in this world is real. The persecution of our brothers and sisters across sea, the slavery that over 20 million people in this world are still in, the cries of all of these people for Jesus to come again. And he will. He will come again. So let us make sure, as we profess this we believe in the Apostles' Creed, that we know what it is, that we have built our foundation solidly so that when the forces come and they try to push against us and test the structures of faith that, that God is building in us, that we won't crumble that our building won't fall and, and, and then damage the buildings around us. Because we know that our foundation of faith is found, one, in the life of Jesus, two, in his death, and three, in his resurrection. That's a massive foundation. That's something more than perhaps we could possibly fully hope to build upon, but let us try anyways, so that the world can see and hope for the coming of Jesus just like we do. Amen. Would you pray with me? <clears throat> Dear Father, 
We confess our belief in your son and in the things that he has done. And so, Lord, help us in this building of our houses of faith. Establish this foundation firmly in our, in our lives without error so that as we build, as we grow, and as we are rooted in you, that we may be firmly rooted and that we can build and, and, and enjoy life with you and, and minister this to the whole world. Give us confidence in your Son, whom we pray through. Amen. All right.